Good morning. My name is Russell Brown, and I serve as an elder here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 12, 35 through 40. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You may be seated. Good morning. Russell read the correct scripture. You read the wrong one. I think that was last week's. I think that was last week's. So Russell did a fantastic... Thank you, Russell. Actually, thank you. The whole worship team this morning, they did fantastic. I really appreciate uh, the worship team this morning. Not not that I don't normally, but this morning especially. A couple of things um, to mention before we uh, get into the message this morning. A few things with our uh, computer systems aren't working quite properly. Those of you here in the worship center uh, really other than the, the wrong scripture being up, aren't noticing it. But the folks in the, in the fireside room and the folks with us online are not getting the, the, the lyrics uh, for the, the songs and, and that sort of thing. The other thing I just got, I feel like I have to tell you, it also impacts the proper functioning of the clock uh, that I normally look at. <laughs> so I wanted you to know the clock that I normally ignore is not working properly. And... For fear that I would ignore it because it's, you know, it says it's 9 o'clock in the morning still, it's been turned off. So really it's win-win. I will still go the same length I always do. I just won't feel bad about it. So <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, uh, we're off on the right uh, foot this morning. Uh, we'll be in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48 this morning. Why don't we just take a brief moment and pray and ask God for His kindness to us as we spend some time in His Word. God, we thank you for your grace to us that we have the opportunity and ability to gather here this morning, read your word, and have it impact our hearts and lives. We pray that your spirit might prepare us, that we'd be willing to repent where we need to, that we would be willing to be encouraged and lifted up and have our faith built up. And Lord, for those of us who have yet to put our faith in Christ, that this morning, by your grace, you would draw us in for salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus will return. Jesus uh, will return. This is a a certainty. Uh, Jesus will return. The Bible Bible makes it quite clear. Jesus made it quite clear when he left that he will return, and when he returns, there will be no question at all about his return. He says, when I come back, there'll be no mistaking it. It'll be lightning. It'll be like lightning in the sky. Everybody will see it, and everybody knows. Jesus will return. So, be ready. Jesus will return, be ready. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus will return, be ready. So if our life in Christ until the day of his return is a race, which the author of Hebrews likens our life in Christ to a race, we ought to think about that race. And he, he, just a couple of quick things. Number one, he says we ought to run with endurance. That means it's not a short race. It's a, a race where it requires some intentional effort to keep going. Run with endurance. Secondly, don't run with unneeded burdens. If you're going to run, don't carry extra weight if it's not needed. And he says, so set aside this weight. In this case, that weight is sin. He says, set aside the sin which slows you down. Say no to sin and run with endurance the race that is before you. He also says this about our race, our run uh, in life with Christ is to run looking to Jesus. So run like Jesus with endurance, setting aside sin, recognizing that this race will involve suffering. The Bible says, or it says right there, that Jesus went to the cross, enduring its shame. So this is a race, our life of running with Christ to be ready. We need to recognize what the life is like. It's a race of endurance where we have to set aside extra weight, run like Jesus, pushing through suffering. Jesus will return, be ready, run like Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 also likens the Christian life to a race. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians. Did I say 2 Corinthians? Did I say 1 Corinthians? Oh, good. I thought maybe you misheard. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27 says this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So if we run a race that is the Christian life, number one, we run like Jesus with endurance, setting aside sin, enduring suffering. Secondly, we run to win. We run to win. That's what he said. Every runner who runs, runs to win, to receive a prize. And runners who receive a prize here on earth, whether it be the Olympics or uh, the, the track meet that was up in Eugene here this summer, they win a prize. They get a medal or they might get a cash prize. They might get some, a title or something else. We run to win to receive a prize that will never go away. It will never go away. It's an imperishable prize. So we run to win. So a quick question for you. This is really, really hard. Put on your thinking caps. I still don't know what that means. When I was a kid in school, they said, put on your thinking caps. What, what do you get one of these? I have no idea what that means. Anyway, where is the winner of a race decided? Where is that? This isn't hard. Not a trick question. Some of you, in church, the answer is supposed to be Jesus. That is correct. Where is the winner of a race decided? The finish line. That's where it's decided. The winner is not the one with the best start. The winner is not the one with the fastest lap. The winner is not the one with the best intentions. The winner is the one who crosses the finish line first or who completes the race in the shortest amount of time. The goal in the Christian life is what? 
the finish line. We're going we're gonna to run this race with the finish line in mind. Jesus will return. Be ready at the day of the finish line. What we have to understand here, and we'll get back into Luke here in just a second, readiness is assessed at the time of Jesus' return, not before. Jesus will return. Be ready. And we have to understand this. Readiness is assessed on the day of his return, not before then. The finish line, listen, this is going to bother you. It's in my job description. Sorry. Job one, bother people. The finish line is more important than the starting line. Now, some of you, you're sitting here going, no, if you don't get saved, you won't get to the finish line. So the finish line can't be more important. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. I understand this. But if we're thinking about what it means to be ready, a good start doesn't make you ready. What makes you ready? A good finish. That's what Jesus' point is going to be. You may not like it. That may bother you. Not my problem. The finish line is where readiness is assessed. Not the beginning and not the middle, but the finish line. And, the, and what we're going to discover in Luke chapter 12 is this. The only way to be ready on the day of the Lord's return, the only way to be ready on the day of the finish line is what? To be ready every day. That's the only way. Jesus will return, so you must be ready. In order to be ready on that day, what does that mean? You must be ready each day. That's what Jesus' point is going to be. Go back to Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Jesus begins with, a couple of figures of speech. We've got about a, a half a dozen figures of speech he uses in here that we're going to understand what it means to be ready. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Another, another way of saying this is gird your loins. To be dressed for action, gird your loins. In, in the first century, many men would have been wearing robes. And if you had to do something active, whether go to battle or run or do something that required ability to move without the restriction of the flowing fabric, they would tuck the robe up under their legs and tie it around their waist, still providing modesty, but their robe ends up looking like a pair of shorts. So now they can run without the restrictive flowing robe. Gird your loins so you're ready to go. So he's saying, in, in regard to the return of the Lord, have yourself prepared for action and keep your lamps burning. It means we have to take intentional and determined steps to be ready. Readiness isn't merely a state of mind or an attitude. Readiness is determination and intentional steps that are done to prepare for the finish line. And in fact, to prepare for each day between now and that day. So he's keeping, he says to stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. You don't have to keep your lamps burning if the lamp is only going to burn for five minutes, do you? You have to keep your lamp burning if you know it's going to be a while. So what Jesus is saying, this intentional action is not merely to be ready for that day. It's to be prepared for the reality that that day may be a ways away. So I need to have some oil. I need to trim the lamps. I need to be ready that at any moment's notice, I'm ready to take action. That's what these two figures of speech are trying. I just looked up for the clock that doesn't exist. So it looks like I have three hours left. Fantastic. <laughs> Gird your loins, be ready, take intentional action, not just to be ready for the day of the Lord, but to be ready for the delay between now and the day of the Lord. Verses 36, 37, and 38, he now shifts to a new figure of speech. 
be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at a table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes home in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. So he tells this little story, another figure of speech that incorporates that first verse. He's looking at these servants of this household, and the master goes away to go to a wedding feast, and these servants ought to be dressed for action. Their robes are tucked up and ready to go for when their master returns, and the lamps are kept going, and the master goes away to a wedding feast. Now, wedding feasts are notoriously difficult to predict when they will start and end. Jesus tells another parable of the ten young women who keep their lamps burning, hoping the bridegroom will show up, and he shows up, I think, after midnight. Five of them had run out of oil, and they were unable to get into the wedding. The wedding starts when? When the bridegroom shows up. When does the bridegroom show up? Whenever he feels like it. You're invited to my wedding. It'll be sometime this week, is kind of what it might be. So the master goes to this wedding. He doesn't know when it's going to start. Finally, it does start. Who knows when? And he's enjoying the company of the people in his village. And he's eating a fantastic feast. And he's drinking plenty of great wine. And finally, the wedding feast is ended. And he is making his way back home. And he wonders, when he gets to his home, will anybody be up? Or will it be dark and quiet? And and the point is, when he does return, his hope is that his servants will be attentive and ready to go. This is the the phrase it uses. It says, the men are waiting for their master to come home so that they may open to the door at once when he knocks. So this is the guy with the hand on the doorknob. And then here's one knock. Gotcha. Come on in, master. We're ready to go. Come in, the table's laid out. Now that you're here, we're going to get the food out of the warming oven. We're going to put it out. The lamps are lit and bright. Let me get your coat. Another servant scurries out to get the pack animals, puts them away in the stable, and he comes in. That's what he wants to have happen. When is that going to happen? Nobody knows. Then the only way for that servant to be standing by the door, ready to open that door, when the master comes home, is for, is for him to stand by that door the whole time. That's the only way for that to happen. Or for him to know when the master is coming home, but the point is he has no idea. So the only way to be ready is to what? Always be ready. That's his his point here. But there's a positive thing about this. Look what he says. Blessed are those servants. This is verse 37. Blessed are those the Lord or the master finds awake. So this assumes that not all the servants made it. A few of them are sleeping They've already, they, they just couldn't handle it. They're already sleeping. But for those servants that are still awake, blessed are those servants. In fact, look what happens. This is crazy. Look what happens. The master will dress himself for service. What does it say at the beginning in verse 35? Dress yourself for service. Gird your loins. Now what's the master doing? The master is now girding his loins and says, no, 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 no. You guys sit down. You guys sit down. Let me get you some food. You guys have been up all night, and I appreciate it. Why don't you guys sit down? Let me get you some food. Let me get you a glass of wine. Let me tell you all about the wedding feast. So what happens is these servants who stayed awake, when the master comes back, his pleasure is poured out on them as he then 
serves them. The ones who stayed awake experienced this great blessing. There's an even greater blessing. Are you ready? If he comes back in the second watch after midnight or the third watch, almost dawn. Blessed are those servants. So the ones where the delay has been, everybody's asleep, everybody's out, it's almost dawn. It's almost dawn, everybody's asleep, and there's one guy by the door, he's hanging out of the door, I'm trying to keep his eyes open. Blessed is the servant that stayed ready all the way to the end. He, he, he wasn't just ready when the master returned. The master knows when he shows up and that servant's been awake, he knows. This servant has been ready for the last eight hours. He hasn't been just ready when I got here. He's been ready all night long. And Jesus says, blessed is that servant who is ready when the master is coming. And guess what? The master is delayed. Now, we're describing in terms of our perspective. When, when Jesus returns and we experience the glory of his kingdom, we will look at the moment of his return and say, oh, yeah, that's exactly what it was supposed to happen. But in this moment, doesn't he seem like he's a little late? You're, you're afraid to say that in church. I know. It's like anytime, right? Anytime. That's how many people, it seems like maybe he should have already come, you know? And so there's this delay. And when the master, in his delay, says there is great blessing for servants, even though he seems delayed, there is great blessing for those servants who remain ready. A constant state of readiness, even though it seems like he's delayed. Because think of what some of those servants might have been thinking. Sorry, my, my eye is itching from looking at the non-existent clock. About that third watch, when it's almost dawn, you know there were servants that were going, um, I think he stayed over. I, th I think he found a host home. I think he stayed over. He's not coming back tonight, guys. I think he stayed. Nobody would come back this late. No, but no, it doesn't make any sense. Especially if the party was going this late. Dude probably had a couple of glasses of wine. He is not legal to ride a donkey. <laughs> he probably stayed over. Smart guy. Why don't we all just go to bed? And, and one of those, the blessed servant says, my job, I got one job. It's not to figure out what he's doing, when he's doing. My job is what? Be ready. Not look for reasons not to be ready. Be ready. And the only way to be ready at the moment of the master's return is to be ready the whole time. That's the only way. Look at verses 39 and 40. He now shifts to another figure of speech. Know this, that if a master or the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his, left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So it's a different master in a different house. This is a new figure of speech. He's saying, if you've got a guy who's in charge of his house, and he, say he gets an email. Hey, I'm a robber. I'm going to rob your house at 1230 a.m., FYI. So what's the master have to do? He only has to be ready for the thief at 1230 a.m., he can go to bed, set an alarm, wake up at midnight, get the guards out, protect his house for half an hour, maybe an hour in case he's early or late, catch the thief, go back to bed. But generally, robbers don't do that. In fact, the intention of a thief is to arrive at the lowest anticipated level of readiness that could be predicted. 
That's the whole idea. And Jesus here is saying his return is a manner like that. The only way to be ready is not to try and predict his return, but to maintain a state of readiness the way a person would do who wants to protect their home. The call isn't for mere readiness in the day of the Lord. Rather, to be ready at the end, we must always be ready. Look at verse 40. You must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When is the Son of Man coming? Don't know, but I know this about it. When it happens, collectively, we will all say, didn't see that coming. It's an hour when we don't expect. Nobody, it says, I'm just reading your Bible. Nobody's going, I knew it. If somebody says it, I'm looking at Jason. If somebody says it, we can all say, no, you're a liar. You didn't have, you didn't expect it. He is coming when he's not expected. And so the only way, if you think you can figure out when he's coming so that it might be expected, the Bible says no. The only way to be ready for his return is to always be ready. A constant state of vigilance towards being ready for the return of God by living a life that glorifies him. So that's the big question. We've been saying it over and over. Jesus will return, so be ready. And you may be asking this question in your mind. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be ready? I'm glad you asked. Let's start, though, over in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verse 13, says this. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, he's using a different term from ready. He's using the term for, he's using the term watch. And watchfulness and readiness are really, really, uh, really, being used synonymously. I might say this, in order to be ready, you must be watchful, and in order to be watchful, you must be ready. The two things are working at once. So Jesus is saying in Matthew 25, be watchful, be ready. How do you do that? He tells a parable of the talents, and I'm going to read it. It will be like a man going on a journey, which is he's likening to when he, le- when he left, his ascension. It'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, when they least expected it. The master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Verse 22 And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I made two more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, 
you can have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you know that I reap, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with bankers and at my coming should have received what was my own with interest. I know he doesn't see the, the interest rates were different back then, you know. <laughs> Savings account could do something for you back then. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has been, who has, uh, will be more be given and will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Cast that worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Keep watch. And keeping watch and being ready is not passively waiting for suffering to end. Readiness is not passively waiting for the Lord to return so suffering will end. Watchfulness and readiness, rather, is active engagement in kingdom activities on an ongoing basis. Readiness, watchfulness, is active engagement in the activities of the kingdom on an ongoing basis. To be ready, you must be engaged with the work of the kingdom of God on an ongoing basis. And when are we supposed to be ready? Every day till the day of his return. Actively engaged in the work of the kingdom. That's what we see in those two faithful servants. Jesus will return. Be ready. Watchfulness is active service. So what is active service like for the individual uh, person? And not just merely thinking of a group of people like a church. But what does it look like for me uh, to be an active servant in the things of God's kingdom, to have watchfulness and readiness characterized in my life, we have to understand its faithfulness about how God has gifted me in particular. You notice with those three servants, one servant got five talents, one got two, one got one. So watchfulness and readiness is thinking about how God has gifted us as individuals, what God has granted to us as individuals, and saying, how do I manage what God has granted as a responsibility to be actively engaged in the kingdom of God until he returns. So let's read the second half of Luke uh, chapter 12, beginning in verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for all of us? Are you telling this parable for us or for all, I should say? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat, drink, and get drunk... The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour when he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Verse 47, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So Peter's question is this when thinking about readiness and watchfulness. 
Who is this for? Is this for the disciples? Is this for the apostles? Is this for Jesus' close followers? Who is this parable for? And Jesus starts with a question. Who is the faithful and wise manager who is appointed over the master's household? So he's asking this question. Do you want to be a faithful and wise manager that God appoints over his household? You have to ask, that's a question for each individual. Do you want to be that kind of person, a faithful and wise manager that God blesses by putting you over his household? If you would like to, it's for you. If that's not your gig and you don't care about God and you want to bury your talent in the ground, this isn't for you. So Peter's question is saying, who are you talking to? And Jesus' answer is, whoever wants to be faithful in my household. Pay attention to what readiness and watchfulness look like. All who want to be faithful, listen to how a person properly stewards what is given to them. Faithfulness means this. Jesus will return. I should give you the, I mean, maybe you figured it out. First of all, Jesus is, Jesus will return. Be ready. Jesus will return. Be faithful. Faithfulness means we wonder, what does it mean for God to work through me in particular? The popular phrase came out. I've mentioned it before, and I'm not against the phrase. I don't mind it, but what would Jesus do? You've heard this phrase? I think that's a fair question when wondering what the right or wrong thing to do is. But faithfulness is a little bit different than that. Faithfulness looks at what God has given us as individuals. Gifting, resources, and opportunities. It doesn't say what would Jesus do if he were here. It's what would I do since I'm in Christ? What has God determined for me with my particular gifting and temperament and resources and opportunities. What would Jesus do in me here? We have to think about this differently because we're all, as Christians, I think, I would hope anyway, want to be like Jesus. But we have to recognize that you becoming more like Jesus and me becoming more like Jesus does not mean we end up looking the same. In fact, you like Jesus looks different than me like Jesus. And faithfulness for the, the faithful servant is saying, God has given me particular resources and spiritual gifting and particular opportunities and relationships. What would Christ do through me in this moment? And that's what faithfulness looks like. It asks that question, what would I do? What ought I to do since Christ is in me and I want to live a Christ-like life, life given the opportunities that Jesus has given me? Jesus will return. We must be faithful. And faithfulness is fidelity to Jesus, loyal to Jesus in his absence. It's fidelity to understanding that to relate to Christ in his absence, I do so by stewarding the opportunities he has granted in how he has made us as individuals and what he has given us. We are faithful in what he gives us, especially in relationship to others. He talks to Peter here about a manager who is intended to give food to other servants. So Jesus wants us, in his absence, to be faithful stewards with what he has given, especially in how we relate to others. Uh, look with me. Psalm 32, verse 8, says this. The psalmist is instructing his listeners, maybe his son. He says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you 
with my eye upon you. Verse 9. Do not be like a horse or a mule. Well, that's nice. That's just kind of rude. Just so you know, don't put this in a greeting card. It's your anniversary. This is not <laughs> fair warning. Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. I'm about to be rude. And you say, well, you've done that the whole time. Good. Here we go. I mean, we pray, God, show me what I ought to do. Show me what I ought to do. Show me what I ought to do. And God says, you're not a mule. Do you really need me to lead you around? I mean, some of you, some of you guys are, have employees or maybe kids. Do you want, is it helpful if you got to stand by your kid or your employee and tell them what to do all day long? What do you say to that employee at the end of the day? I don't need you. If I got to stand here and give you the next step and the next step, I don't need an employee because I'm standing here. I need you to do something so I can go do something else. But then in our Christian life, we become paralyzed because we think God give us a brain not to use it. And, and, and the, the psalmist here is telling you, he gave you gifts. He gave you abilities. He gave you a mind. He gave you resources. Now with your, your prayer and, and your understanding of the word, say, I think this is what I ought to do. This is what Jesus looks like expressed in someone like me. To put it in vocational terms. A Christian might say, I am a plumber. And then another guy says, who is a Christian who is a carpenter. And if the Christian who is a plumber says, the only way to be a faithful Christian, I have to frame a house. You say, well, no, no, that's what a carpenter does. And the plumber will say, no, what does it look like to do my vocation, bringing glory to my Savior? And it's going to look different than somebody with a different vocation. And the psalmist is calling us to engage our mind and our heart with the Lord in prayer and knowing his word and just jumping out and getting after it and not having to be led by bit and bridle. Faithfulness is fidelity to Jesus in his absence that when he returned, we say, I wasn't exactly sure what to do, Lord, so I went with this. And I hope it brings you glory. The goal is to be a faithful and wise manager. Back to Luke chapter 12 Verses 41 and through 44. The goal is to be a faithful and wise manager. The master, in this case the Lord, gives us responsibility. And blessing occurs when the master discovers his servants being faithful when he returns. And in fact, he says here there's great blessing in verse 43. Blessed is that servant when the master comes and find him doing so when he returns. I will set him over my possessions, the master says. There is great blessing for the, for the steward who is actively engaged in the kingdom of God. Because when the master returns and finds him busy about the kingdom of God, he's pleased with that and says, I'm going to put you over my kingdom. I'm going to put you over stuff that lasts forever. There's great blessing in it. The goal is faithful and, of the faithful and wise manager is to be so busy about the work of the kingdom that when Jesus shows up, it's an interruption. So many people think waiting for the kingdom of God means getting a lawn chair and a cup of iced tea and sitting in your, in your yard looking east. What? We're watching YouTube videos all day long on what the price of oil should be when, the Jesus, when Jesus returns. What? 
Being ready for Jesus' return means we're so busy about the business of the kingdom of God that when he returns, it's an interruption. We're busy and we're working and somebody taps us on the shoulder. We're working. Oh, you're back. Oh, good. See ya. I mean, that's what, that's what watchfulness is. So busy about the work of the kingdom of God that when Jesus returns, he's interrupting. Look at verses 45 and 46. He gives two other kinds of servants. There's actually several kinds of servants that are identified here. And we're going to try and understand what he's saying here. There's a couple of, there's the faithful servant we just talked about. And then 45 and 46, there's a couple of unfaithful servants, but in different categories. First one, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. What are the chances Jesus is going to come on a day we don't expect? 100%, perfect. And this servant is getting drunk because the, the master isn't coming, and he's taking advantage of the other servants. He's beating the other servants. He's seeking pleasure in his life and abusing people in his relationships around him because he assumes the master is never going to come back or that he could predict when the master is going to come back, and this servant experiences condemnation. This servant is sent out with those who are unfaithful at the end of verse 46, likely one who is operating within the confines of the kingdom of God, but never actually engaged with Jesus' promises through faith. Doesn't want Jesus to come back because he is enjoying a life of luxury and power in the master's absent. But now there's a couple of other servants here we want to pay attention to. Look at verse 47. There was a servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, He'll receive a severe beating. Wow, that's, oh, that escalated quickly. This is different than the guy who was getting drunk and beating people. This is a guy who knows what the master is going to do. Eh, it's just kind of busy. Yeah, I've got a lot of things going on. Kingdom of God will work itself out. I've uh, got a lot going on. So this is a servant who isn't doing anything terribly bad like this other servant who was acting like an unbeliever. This is a servant who knows the things of God and is sort of like casually disinterested. And then the master shows up, and this guy gets a whooping. He said, well, that's not, um, that's not very polite. I didn't write the Bible. If you want a polite book, we shouldn't be in the Bible. The Bible is nothing if it's not impolite. Have you read it? It's terribly offensive. All right. That's why I love it. Verse 48. Then there's another kind of servant. Just, it's going to get worse before it gets better, so buckle in. This one didn't know what he was supposed to do. He was ill-informed. Didn't know what, he wasn't really understanding what the kingdom of God was all about. And the master shows up, and he also was not being faithful to the things of the kingdom of God because he apparently didn't have enough information, according to the Bible here. He received a light beating. This really bothers you. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. The one who is entrusted much, more will be demanded. That's the, the, the idea he is saying here. Each person is given a stewardship. Five talents, two talents, one talent, gifts, resources, opportunities, relationships. And it's all different. And all he is saying is, look, you are going to be evaluated on that day, the day of the Lord, based on the stewardship you have been granted. And on that day, there will be a sense of loss for many. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 famous passage. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10. 
According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So Paul is talking about his ministry of starting churches through evangelistic work in cities like Ephesus and Philippi. He would establish a foundation upon the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling people to salvation. He didn't often stay and nurture those churches for a long period of time. Elders and others would be appointed like Timothy and others who would have longer-term ministry in these churches. So he's laying a foundation of the gospel, and others are building on it. Verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day. What day is that? Day of the Lord. When is that? When we don't expect. You're getting it, all right? Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. It's a work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. Fantastic. If anyone's work is burned up, he will what? You don't even want to say it. Suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as one jumping through a fire. What is happening here? Is he saying, look, God has given each of us gifts, resources, opportunities, relationships, and we have the opportunity to use those in the kingdom of God, building on the foundation of the gospel by investing in the lives of others and the activities of the kingdom of God, those things which we build which have lasting value, which is the work of God through us to bring the love of Christ to others. Those things which we do which are motivated by the things of God will we'll bring great reward. Those things which we do, which are done through self-interest, motivated by self-interest and arrogance, those things which we do, which aren't about the thing, kingdom of God, but which are about our own kingdom, those things will not last. And they will be burned up. What does this mean? I've to, I told you this before, and I don't know how to say it politely. I'm actually, to be honest, I don't know how to say anything politely. Your experience of eternity in the kingdom of God is determined by how you live today. That's just biblical. We've read at least two parables and now a, an epistle where that's made quite clear. Everybody in the kingdom of God will be full. Nobody will be disappointed. However, no, not everybody will experience eternity the same. Your experience... In the kingdom of God, for all of eternity, is determined to some extent by what happens in your readiness and your faithfulness. Nobody's going to be disappointed. Every, every single person in heaven is going to say to God, this was embarrassingly generous. I don't even know what to do about it. However, when we cross the threshold of heaven, what the Bible is teaching us, we will understand and assess what could have been. And we will suffer loss. All of us will to some degree because all of us are fallen creatures and we do things for self-interest and pride and arrogance and all the time. But what Paul, the epistle, and Jesus wants us to understand is our experience of glory. Salvation is not determined by what we do. That's determined by the work of Christ that we trust. However, your reward and glory is a function of readiness and faithfulness. 
and a lack of readiness, a lack of faithfulness, pursuit of our own agenda and our own arrogant ideas is a recipe for experiencing loss while we might experience salvation. Jesus will return. Be ready. If you want to be ready on the day of Jesus' return, when do you have to be ready? Every day. The only, that's the only way to do it. I used to, I've told you this story before. When my mom used to get off of work and she would tell us we'd had chores to do, we'd had somebody give lookout because they would look down the street. And once we saw her car, you start doing the chores. There's no way to give lookout for Jesus. And guess what? Mom could tell when our chores were done that quick. <laughs> right? There's no one to give. The only way to be ready on the day of the Lord is to always be ready. So I want you to think about your Christian life a little bit differently. So a couple of things uh, is this. Uh, maybe we often make fun of people who pick dates of Christ's return throughout history. There's been a number of people who write books saying, here's the day or here's the year when Jesus is going to return. And, and authors write these books or they run podcasts or they make a YouTube video and we watch it. And maybe some of us who are uh, biblical Christians will sort of mock them a little bit, and maybe rightfully so. Because sometimes I'll say this, I don't know what day it is, I know what day it's not, it's the day you picked. I mean, thanks for ruining that day. Stop picking days. But the question is, as a believer, I think all of us might be date pickers a little bit. Let me explain what I mean. We don't pick what day he's coming, we pick what day he's not. And what day is that? Today. That's a problem. Because what we do in our life is we do this. Lord, I am sorry for yesterday. You know yesterday, God? I'm really sorry about that. No, seriously, bad day. Sorry about that. I promise to give you all of my tomorrows. Today is all mine. It's so arrogant. It's so foolish. You think he's not coming after church today? He never has. Well, he's only coming once. Do you live like it won't be today? Do you give God your tomorrows? Guess what? If you give God all of your tomorrows, what will it never be for you? It's never tomorrow. It's always today. If you want to give God your life, you don't give him your tomorrows. You give him today right now. Don't figure out. It is arrogant, according to Christ, to decide tomorrow I'm going to be different. Christ is asking us to do 2 o'clock this afternoon different. What does readiness and faithfulness look like knowing he might come before we go to bed tonight? We don't have a lot of time then. We better get, get it figured out. It's always today. And in order to be ready on that day, we have to be ready today. Okay, second thing on this. Watchfulness is not wanting Jesus to come to end your suffering. Now, I know many of us are suffering very, very significantly, and we look forward to Jesus' return because when he returns, suffering will be at end. But watchfulness here is not motivated primarily with ending suffering. Watchfulness here is motivated by Christ being pleased when he returns. And we, we, we put too much of an emphasis as Christians on escaping suffering on the day of the Lord. It makes us um, cringe at suffering today. Our Savior was not offended by suffering. He endured in it to the glory of the Father, and then glory comes after suffering. So watchfulness is in this momentary difficulty. And like I said, many of us have significant uh, pains and difficulties we're experiencing Watchfulness is not merely the hope suffering will end. It's, a, it's saying suffering is 
What does readiness look like in the middle of this? What does watchfulness look like in this stewardship even of challenge I have been given? What does it mean to be faithful to Christ as one who is suffering in this particular way? Because that suffering is going to go away someday. Thank God, right? But, but it's not yet. And once you are in heaven, you will never again have the opportunity to glorify Jesus in suffering, ever. You will never, the only time we get to glorify Jesus in suffering is this side of eternity. So let's get at it. Let's get it done. Because one day that's going to be gone. We'll glorify Jesus in a different way there. But don't miss this opportunity to bring glory to Christ in our suffering. Now, hear me. I'm not saying your suffering's lame. It's hard. It's harder than we know. Harder than anybody knows. All I'm saying is trust Jesus in it and say, what can I do to glorify Jesus even in this very difficult stuff? Okay, last one. I'm not done picking on you yet. Like I said, what I always do is when a passage really is convicting to me, I figure i got to share the love. If you watched anybody run, you know anyone can run hard at the beginning. Anyone can run hard at the beginning. The real stuff of faith in Jesus comes at the finish line. There's two possible ways you reach the finish line in your life with Christ. Number one is Jesus returns. Come soon, Lord. That's a verse, so I'm quoting. What's the other way? We do your funeral. If you haven't had either one yet, I can't tell for everybody. Looks like... It's like everybody's still with us. Then don't stop running. Don't stop running. Some of us, as we get older, I'm turning 50 this year. I know. It's hard to believe I'm even standing up here. I told you, I don't have time for this, but I had a doctor's appointment this year, annual, you go see the doctor. All the questions have changed. What happened? They're asking me about my balance and trip hazards in my house. What are you talking about? We doing trip hazards. I walk over the trip hazards. I don't know what happened. I, I said, do you have the right name on the appointment? Are you? <laughs> Something happened. All right. Anyway, don't say this. I've heard this before, and, and I'm just going to share it with you. Don't say this. I did my time. Man, I tell you what. If the primary time to earn reward in the Christian life is the finish line. Why are we punching out when we punch out of work? I don't understand that. I don't understand that. Now, I get it. As we, as we get older, we less energy and, and all those sorts of things, and I'm sort of getting it as, as the years tick by. But when are you done? I'm not just picking on the old folks. All of us. When are you done? The return of the Lord or your funeral. If we're not doing your funeral and the Lord hasn't come in, don't punch out early. You're missing too great of an opportunity. Some of the greatest opportunities for you to serve the kingdom of God are going to happen at the end. Don't squander it. Do what you're doing. Just what you're doing, wherever that is, whatever it looks like for you, do it and say to yourself, what does faithfulness to the kingdom of God look like here? If I'm not at work and if I'm on vacation, what does it look like to be faithful to the kingdom of God during times of leisure and during times of work and during times of illness? Don't miss out on the reward that comes with being faithful to the very end. I'm going to close with a poem. It's, um, it's not very long. It's actually a song. It's written by a, a songwriter named Steve Taylor. 
And uh, I'm just going to read it. it. It's a song, and the reason I'm saying it's a poem is because I'm not going to sing it. You're welcome. You're welcome, you know. <laughs> I've sort of pr- pulled out some of the important uh, text of it, but you can do a search on Google and listen to the song. It is a rock and roll song. If you don't like rock and roll, don't do it. I'm going to close with this. Steve Taylor, Finish Line. It's written from the perspective of Hebrews chapter 12, that great cloud of witnesses. So it's written from the perspective of one of those witnesses watching the life of a believer on earth. Once upon an average morn, an average boy was born for the second time. Prone upon the altar there, he whispered up the prayer he'd kept hidden inside. The vision came, he saw the odds, a hundred little gods on a gilded wheel. These will vie to take your place, but Father, by your grace, I will never kneel. And I saw you, upright and proud, and I saw you wave to the crowd. I saw you laughing out loud at the Philistines. I saw you brush away rocks. I saw you pull up your socks. I saw you out of the blocks for the finish line. Darkness falls, the devil stirs, and as your vision blurs, you start stumbling. The heart is weak, the will is gone, and every strong conviction comes tumbling down. And I saw you licking your wounds. I saw you weave your cocoons. I saw you changing your tunes for the party line. And I saw that you hemmed And you hawed, and I saw that you hedged all your bets, waiting for a sign. The vision came, he saw the odds, a hundred little gods on a gilded wheel. These have tried to take your place, but Father, by your grace, I will never kneel. I will never kneel. Off in the distance, bloodied but wise, as you squint with the light of the truth in your eyes, and I saw you. Both hands were raised. Something in my throat. I saw your lips move in praise. I saw you steady your gaze for the finish line. Every idol like dust, a word scattered them all, and I rose to my feet when you scaled the last wall, and I gasped. When I saw you fall in his arms at the finish line. Father, we thank you that you are waiting for us to come home. We thank you that you will be waiting there with your arms open to catch us. Carry us across that finish line. Father, I would ask in this moment you might do a work by your spirit. That we would ready ourselves that we would be watchful. That in this moment, that gilded wheel of gods that we have pursued, we would kick it to the side and say, Lord, no more. Today is yours. God, I would pray and I would hope that this body of believers would be among those people running hard across the finish line. You would find us faithful for your glory. And with joy, we would enter into reward. In Jesus' name, amen.